Hi, this is Jason from Seattle. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, what are you waiting for? Visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. Maximum It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, more audio from our trip to the Bumbershoot Music and Arts Festival in Seattle, Washington. On this podcast, Janine Garofalo. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the show, Janine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I read on the internet that at your <laughs> you won't believe some of Barack Obama's outrageous background. No, I read, I read on the internet that um, at your first ever stand-up comedy show, um, you wrote all of your material on your arm and hand. That is true. I, Fascinating story. I, now, Fascinating story. I, al- I also read on the internet uh, that you were surprised that you got a stronger reaction from the fact that you were reading it off of your arm and hand than your actual material. Well, the, at the time, this is, I started doing stand-up when I was a junior in college, and uh, you know, I, I really didn't have much material to speak of, but I wanted to write bullet points of what I wanted to get to, and I just jotted down buzzwords or what have you on my hand and arm. And apparently... Buzzwords and what have you? Bu- what have you. Web 2.0, social media. I wrote the actual media. phrase, buzzwords and what have you, <laughs> on my arm, and I have since had it tattooed <laughs> to my forearm. But uh, the, I guess the audience found it funny that I was... Uh, because it was natural, the way I was doing it, which when I did it again later, because somebody said, you should do that, and uh, unfortunately I took that advice. You should never never take advice in, in the world of stand-up, but... And uh, it was it was false, and so it never wor- it never got the reaction that it did, you know, doing doing that because there was something very I guess amusing about the real the real um, motion of me looking at my arm. But I've since just written stuff in notebooks and on little scraps of paper, which I still to this day I've been doing it 23 years now, which is where does the time go, huh? Where does it go? I can't believe, but I still will bring a notebook, whether I look at it or not. I just need it for security. Purposes. What what got you onto what got you onto the stage? What what was the impetus? Alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> alcohol. No, I just wanted to be a stand-up a... comic for my career. I mean, as a as a as my job. Um, as a kid, I was just a real fan of the form of stand-up comedy, and I would listen to stand-up comedy albums and memorize them and. Um, and then Letterman came on when I was in high school, and I thought, I definitely want to write for Letterman and live in New York, and then uh, by the time I was a junior in college, I thought, uh, no, I would like to write for myself and do stand-up, and, and that was the career path I started following. A lot of comedians, I, I interview so many comedians on the show, and a lot of comedians tell me that they decided to be funny because every, they, they had you know a big family, and they were always topping each other at the dinner table or something like that, but... 
from what I read about your background, it seemed like it was almost the opposite. No, there's there's no you know there was a, there's no one of those stories like I had to be funny because I was the fat kid. Well, a I was the fat kid, but I've I've met very few hilarious fat kids. You know what I mean? That, that's this off trotted out narrative that you read in people's Frankly, bios, children in general are not as, that as funny. As if that's gonna prevent anyone from bullying you. Like you know, somebody's about to to you know smack you in the face and you just really zing them with a one liner and hey, this kid's all right. You know that that never. That I've never seen it happen. I don't think any of you have ever seen in the schoolyard setting any hilarious outcast that really wins over the bullies. But, Here's your satin baseball jacket. Yeah, Come in the game. Come on, join us. But um, there, uh, there was, you know, my, my background is incredibly garden variety. There's just no dysfunction really besides the garden variety kind to speak of. There's no, there's no, there's no one of those classic stories that would lead me towards stand-up. It was just a genuine love of stand-up, which actually, if I can really think of where it might have been traced from, and this is not a, a dysfunctional story, I was having a slumber party, and my dad was at his wit's end what to do with us, and uh, Take the Money and Run was on, a Woody Allen film, and my father said, uh, you kids watch this, you know, and he was cooking us something, and um, I just fell in love with Woody Allen. Um, that was around 19... Uh, 76 or 77 or something like that. We were one of the first families for testing HBO um, in New Jersey, and we got to see things that maybe weren't on regular TV yet. And Take the Money and Run and Bananas were on. And uh, I just went insane for for that, uh, for Woody Allen, and which is a lifelong love of Woody Allen to this day. And Albert Brooks and... Um, not, not Mel Brooks, which I don't dislike Mel Brooks, but some people think I'm talking about Mel Brooks when I say Albert Brooks, and there is a difference. But... Um, <laughs> And I used to listen to Nichols and May albums and Bob and Ray and stuff like that. You, you, I thought it was interesting that when you talked about writing on your arm and how the the genuine uh, the genuine action of you reading from your arm was so much funnier than the uh, stage the fabricated version. Yeah, I, I, I think was, uh, something that a lot of stand comics struggle with as comics is getting to a point where. You really look cold. <laughs> you look like you're... Oh, I, it is freezing out here. But I also noticed that this thing was too low, so I did the old... Oh, Yikes! Okay. For you radio listeners, my, I had too much cleavage exposed. Woo! Yeah. Beautiful corduroy. With all the stretch marks. Corduroy boobs. Yeah, nice. the Tom Likas of public radio now. Oh, Tom Likas. Isn't he awesome? Oh, he's amazing. So, so well-spoken. What an intellectual giant. I love Tom it Likas. when he yells something at someone. Oh, yeah, hilarious. <laughs> Especially show me your boobs. Well, you know, there's, that's just one of the gems. I'll tell you, you this. Oh, if I've learned anything in radio, there's nothing that works better in radio than boobs. And there's no better venue for boobs than radio. Right, because you can use your imagination. Exactly. And they, they can be perfect. They, they don't have to be corduroy boobs. Okay, what, what the, question that, the question that moments ago I was asking was... <laughs> So for for a lot of stand-ups, like the the difference between open mic night and being a stand-up comic is finding the place where they can be sincere and genuine on stage when they're kind of doing something that's completely insincere and genuine and not genuine, which is you know doing this jokes that they wrote or whatever. How did you how did you you know find your voice? How did you get to that place where you could? Be you. Well, from the very beginning, I always talked about things that were true. Uh, I, I can't honestly say I delivered them in a natural way. I was very nervous. I mean, I, I was a heavy drinker. I mean, because of that, which became 
much more problematic later in life as, a, as, as, as the ladies age, they don't metabolize the alcohol as, as they should. But um, it, uh, by rights, I, uh, I would be, try and find comfort on stage be, or be more comfortable on stage by drinking. Then um, I realized I didn't have to get drunk to do it. But that was about four years in where I made that realization of, oh, I can, I can now relax. But I always told stories that were, were true. I mean, they may have been embellished for entertainment's sake, but um, I never did the kind of, did you ever notice or make up something like this just happened to be yesterday if it didn't. And um, I, so the, I always had that, I guess if you're saying if that's the voice, I had that, but I didn't have the ability until about four or five years in to be myself uh, on stage, which is strange when people used to say to me, what's that character you do on stage? Or why does your character dress like that? <laughs> which that's, that's how I dress. Or, um, or sometimes, do, do you deliberately try and look unattractive? <laughs> yeah. That is, that is a goal that I strive for on a daily basis. Uh, Barbara Walters actually asked me that once in, in 1996. Well, she's known for making people cry. Well, she, she tried to. I would not do it. Uh, there was a, a special on called uh, Faces to Watch, 1996 or something. And uh, one of the questions she asked me is, is, why do you do it? Why do you try and look so unattractive? That was one. And uh, which is... You know, one of those things, how do you dress it? And then she kept trying to hammer the, the death of my mom when I was a kid, which I'm not, you know, I'm not going to bring up the waterworks talking to Barbara Walters on television. And she wouldn't, she tried every angle to get in there and get it going. But I don't feel human emotions. That's one <laughs> issue. Uh, I am absolutely devoid of, of, uh, of most normal human emotions when it comes to anyone that I know. I can cry like a baby at a commercial. Uh, you know what I mean? If there's something sad happens, but in real life, if something tragic happens to somebody that I actually know, there is just zero ability to, to uh, process an emotion. Uh, so Barbara Walters was, I was going to say S-H, shite out of luck. She was shite <laughs> out of luck. You can say the Irish version of that, right? On uh, radio? Probably FCC. not. No, yes, you can. FCC, FCC regulations, you can say. Is that right? Shite, yeah. You are a professional radio broadcaster yes, I was on radio, yourself. so I know all the things that you can, you can and cannot do. Do they make you a list? Were they kind enough to remind you of it on radio? Uh, there are concert? lists, yeah, that we would get at the radio station of what you could say, and there's things, it differs at 8 p.m., 9 p.m., and 10 p.m. There's more and more that you can say. But shite was always okay. We have our own uh, public radio list mm -hmm. that you have of things you can and can't say. You can't talk about rap music. Mm -hmm. And you have to talk about Joan Baez. Right. And you cannot really, you cannot uh, call a war criminal a war criminal. Right. You must dance around the issue. That's in, the, in all news, I've noticed, that we coddle war criminals, white-collar criminals, and all basic other societal blights get, get coddled and their asses kissed, and then we mock and marginalize people like Kucinich who try and invest our society with some civility. But, I mean, but George, how, how, how many ways are you going to dance around saying the Bush administration has lied? They, they, that, that is what blows my mind. And even uh, National Public Radio... Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. But they should have their FCC licenses revoked. Can you if, you... if one is to believe ostensibly that the journalists are supposed to be serving the public good, that's why they get their they FCC license. They get the license licenses. from the FCC, which is owned by the, the, the spectrum, mm -hmm. owned by the people. Allegedly, yeah. and they're supposed to be telling us the truth and enhancing the quality of our lives as citizens, and they're supposed to be good citizens themselves. Well, they, of course they don't do this, but and so why? I'd like, do they... for example, I'd like to learn karate. 
I've always wanted to know karate. So if there was a radio station with that, that would be really pub that would just be a great service to me. Because it's free. You can turn it on. Can They'd you not say, just do take a karate move. class? Here's how you do the death pinch. Yeah, but it'd be on the radio. How would you see? No, they'd explain it. They'd be really good at it. I don't know if radio is the right medium for karate lessons. They would hire professionals. I feel like there's a better medium for it, like actually taking a class. No. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not going to a class. Absolutely not. It's well, in the future, you've seen the commercials. In the future, there'll be a hologram you can summon up. Janine, at the start of the thing, I'd be bad at it. So I'm not going to a class. Right. Well, you'll have it in your own home. There'll be a hologram. You saw Minority Report. Hello, John oh. Anderton. And there will be the holograms, and you'll just learn karate or... Uh, well, in this case, space karate, most likely. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and actress Janine Garofalo. We'll have more with Janine from the Bumbershoot Music and Arts Festival in just a minute. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. In the early 60s, Mal Sharp and James P. Coyle put on the squarest suits they could find, picked up a briefcase with a hidden tape recorder, and hit the streets of San Francisco with some of the craziest schemes ever imagined by man. Want to know how a drunk sailor reacts when they tell him they'd like him to star in their verite film about a bank robbery, and that they'll be using real guns, and that no one but him will know it's a film, and that afterwards they'll all split the money? You might be surprised. Maximum Fun is proud to present Season 2 of Coil and Sharp, The Imposters. Real put-ons from the real streets of real 1960s San Francisco featuring James P. Coyle and Mal Sharp, a pair of real nuts. Search for Coil and Sharp in iTunes or visit MaximumFun.org. Let's get back to the stage at Seattle's Bumbershoot Music and Arts Festival and my interview with comedian and actress Janine Garofalo. The bulk of the beginning of your stand-up comedy career was in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. um, that was a really kind of a special time in the stand-up comedy world, especially for stand-up comedy, moving from the kind of classic uh, guy in a Miami Vice sport right. coat and a Hawaiian shirt to mm -hmm. something that we something that we might recognize as you know at least thirty percent of the stand-up. Well, comedy actually, it was more today. of a, a going back to you know more of a um, in the in the late fifties and the sixties in the comedy tradition in jazz clubs, which was much more spoken word, free form, m uh, more of a, a social critique. And uh, then it got a bit more homogenized as it became actually more successful when more and more comedians were successful off The Tonight Show and so forth and uh, HBO specials in the, in the 70s and 80s. It became more blazery. But there was this great thing that was happening in both music in the late 80s and comedy as there was more of... They used to call it college radio, but then it turned into alternative or indie rock. Um, but there was more uh, people sort of expressing themselves in a similar vein on stage, but in Boston, there was a very sharp division. There was the hardcore blazer, push-up elbow blazer set, and and, the, and then people like David Cross and a lot of kids out of Emerson, Laura Keitlinger, um, Dennis Leary. Um, actually, just, just a lot of comics you see today. Dana Gould, um, most of the Simpsons writing staff, um, came out of Boston in the late 80s and early 90s. Were you feeling uh, pressured either by others or, or, or just by yourself out of a need to you know, be a 
professional and pay rent and so forth. To work towards that um, five minutes of uh, Carson time rather than that 20 minutes of a story of a thing that happened to you? Well, there's always pressure to do that because there was a a thought that you wouldn't be successful unless you had your Carson five minutes and I guess now your Leno five minutes. I could never do it well. I I just don't. I don't have the ability to write concise jokes in five minutes that really grab a person. I'm uh, unfortunately too wordy or too chatty for that. And uh, there was, there's just no sort of no way I could really do it. But um, I also had a day job until I was 27. So I really wasn't in, in financial. Plus, I had a nice dad. Uh, yeah, be honest about that. I know people loved in this culture, hate to, they love to hate people whose who's, uh, parents uh, floated them some money here, there, and, and uh, everywhere. But um, I did have a day job until I was 27 in addition to doing stand-up. And then I finally got hired for some acting jobs when I was 27 so I could quit my day job. Your, your first uh, couple of, of TV jobs... Um, uh, you worked on the Ben Stiller show, which was uh, a critically beloved and, mm-hmm. and cult beloved show that was cut cut very short. Ended up winning an Emmy after it was mm-hmm. canceled. Um, and then and then you went to Larry Sanders. No, they were the same year. When I was twenty seven, I got cast on those two shows simultaneously. Um, and, and have having had no acting experience prior to that, it was an unbelievably fortuitous thing. But it came out of stand up. I knew Ben from stand up, and I knew Gary from stand up. And then they both asked me to join. The, their, the cast of those shows that same year, and that's when I and, was able to stop. And um, I mean, you know, it's a, Larry mm-hmm. Sanders has been off, off the air for a while, and when it was on the air, it was on a, you know, a paid cable channel, mm-hmm. but a, a, absolutely one of the top uh, five or ten sitcoms ever created for television. Um, w- w- what was it like for you to get other acting jobs... Uh, you know, those are the kind of those are the kind of gigs that get you mm-hmm. uh, other gigs because people love them and respect them on shows that weren't the greatest show of the decade. It, it was a real. Um, it, it was baptism by creamy chocolatey non-fire. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, having those two two jobs right off the bat, fantastic. And also, I was not an actor and didn't didn't know. A lot about it, and I, it was a great, it was a great way to start. Then I went on to other things that was not even remotely similar to those. Not only did I not know everybody in the cast already socially, uh, you couldn't improv, you couldn't change anything. There w- wasn't the freedom. There wasn't also the creative vision at the head of it. Um, and uh, you know, I had uh, did episodic stuff on certain sitcoms where it's just sometimes I just choke on the dialogue. Some of the stuff is just so poorly. Rot, if you will, and and the writers are so precious about you can't change one thing, and and then I had a brief stint on SNL, which at that at that year that I was on was at a very low ebb. I mean, it got it was bad time. It was better before I was there, and then it got better after I left. It, it was specifically was, it was a totally crazy ebb. It, it, it was, was just like a particularly awful time. Twelve thousand bizarre things happening on the show at the yeah. same time. And like then, no one had any idea. And what that then was. it, you know, so I left. So that was a, a terrible experience. But I had to do it every, you know, if. if, if SNL asks you to do it. It's just one of those things where you feel, I just got to do it. Even though I had been told by friends that this maybe this isn't the, the right era of SNL to do it. I did it anyway, and uh, it, it just didn't work out for me. But it, it immediately started picking up when Molly Shannon got there. Right after that, you know what I mean? It just, things started to happen. Um, and, and the women on SNL have really brought it back, I mean, in a really, in a really great way. Were you surprised when... Um 
basically when you got famous. I mean, it was shortly after that Saturday Night Live, you, you were doing films, you, like, you were uh, the star of a hit movie that was a big surprise hit Those movie. Those were the that, days. Yeah, or, but... Those were the, yeah, it was a nice I mean, brief window. That was an interesting but time. You, but, like, w- did you imagine your career uh, building to... Janine is a is a famous like a movie star famous like well, was I don't know that if I something ever was that was in the that. cards? I, I don't know if I ever was ever that famous, but I I never imagined I would be an actor ever anyway. But then uh, I I after I quit SNL, I was uh, told by one of the people that worked there, "You're dead in this town. You know, you never work again." And then thank God, like two weeks after, I got cast in uh, Truth by Cats and Dogs, which was helpful. And then there was this brief window where I could be in movies and I worked a lot and then um, around 2000 that just stopped uh, so it's one of those things where wow that was a wow what happened that was interesting I never anticipated it uh, I didn't appreciate it enough when I was there but now where I sort of don't do stuff like that it feels more like I think that's what I had thought was going to happen that I'd just be sort of moderately working or something like that what do you get out of acting besides uh, money. getting paid. <laughs> yeah. Money. I, I, I would get more out of it. There have been, um, there have been times where I've done things that, uh, the independent things or low budget things that nobody's ever seen that are quite fulfilling and you do get a lot out of it. The part is challenging. I don't get the opportunity to really play very challenging. You know, it's not like I'm in a, in a position where we want you to do the, uh, Emma Goldman story, the Margaret Sanger story, whatever it is, you know, where you'd be like, wow, this is fulfilling, or to be working with Steven Soderbergh or something. I've got this amazing script about Harriet Tubman, and I that, think that would be, Garofalo is the woman to play the part. The, well, you know, there'd be uh, an issue with <laughs> me being Caucasian, but that your point is well taken. So that would be. But would that issue be bigger than the issue of slavery? <laughs> Which I'm against. That would be something for the pundits. That would be something for the pundits to discuss. Fair enough. On, on, on our 24-hour news cycle. Wait, can we, speaking of punditry, can we, can we talk for a minute about your window of punditry as a radio host? Uh-huh. Being, being a radio host, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough as a radio host to host a show where I only have to generate an hour of show a week. And the only time I ever hosted a regular talk show, I was I was working at uh, uh, XM Public X, XM Satellite Radio, and uh, the one of the hosts was on vacation. And at XM, they only have like three people per station. I was interning, and they're like, "Hey, can you host for a week?" And I was like, "Okay." Um, and it was uns. I, I don't you know when you listen to the radio, it sounds so easy. Um, and frankly, what I do is pretty easy, but. That, the talking for hours on end, is an unbelievably difficult skill. What was it like for you to to adjust to that challenge? Well, I was at Air America for about two and a half years, and we did Monday through Friday, um, 8 to 10, sometimes 8 to 11 p.m. And uh, at the beginning, I stuttered like crazy. As soon as, oddly, you know, I'm, I'm a, a fairly articulate person, I guess, uh, I don't know if that if I am or not. I guess compared I think to you're a, a very articulate um, person. <clears throat> compared to articulate people, maybe not. Compared to the average person on the hills, yes, very uh, very articulate. But um, a rock is very articulate but, uh, compared to the average person on the hills. That Caucasian youth vernacular is driving me <laughs> out of my mind. 
I, I don't know how it has swept the country. I mean, I will get back to your point, but that 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 I, I had to watch The Hills recently because I did a staged reading of The Hills at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in L.A. And I played Lauren Conrad, so I bought the DVDs of season two because I, I knew of The Hills, but I hadn't seen it. I watched a, a, the DVD of season two. I I I really I don't know what to say about what I'd seen or what what or why it was happening. And I don't understand the way that now... It's not Valley speak, per se, because everybody does it. It's just, like, lazy. I, you know what I mean? We were, that is so random. Random's a big one. They like to say the word random. Um, but they, that, that just... Uh, this lazy... Um, j- just... Uh, they say, like every 15 minutes so they don't have to actually commit to a thought or an idea uh, or be embarrassed by being passionate about something. Anyway, I just, that sidebar, they'll edit this out, but they, uh, it it was a hard adjustment to to work at Air America initially because I found that as soon as the, we went on air, I would start stuttering unbelievably and it would be difficult to catch thought. I got better at it. Uh, and I also, there was an enormous amount of research and um, learning I had to do for doing a, a political show for f- like four hours a night, five nights a week. But it was a, a fantastic, it was one of the best experiences I've had and one of the jobs I'm proudest of that I've, that I've ever done. And Sam Cedar, my co-host, a truly amazing person and one of the smartest people I've ever met and, and gotten to learn from who I think still works at Air America um, uh, on Sundays, they keep shafting him. I don't know what they. Yeah, excellent you know, radio host as well. Very funny. Guy. He's very, very good. good. Sam Cedar's very, very good. And Rachel Maddow, who's now on MSNBC a lot, is a, another wonderful Air America person who uh, the mainstream media desperately needs. I mean, thank thank God. What did you learn about uh, doing radio from from jumping into it? Um, when Air America was launched with this idea of it being a, a whole new thing, or a, mm-hmm. you know, it was a very big idea type of launch. What, what did you learn from actually, you know, getting behind the microphone every night? Well, the the, the, the idea behind Air America was a, a liberal talk, which is basically reasonable, honest talk. You know, they call it, you know, as opposed to right wing regressive conservative talk, which has dominated the airwaves for the last thirty years and has been. Uh, incredibly instrumental in disinforming at least half the population and, and dumbing down the society and making people more like Tom Likas. And uh, they, so we wanted to have a radio station that countered all the disinformation and all the uh, bullying that was going on. And so there was a, a group of people that got together to do that. Unfortunately, there was a couple of people who were grifters, shysters, con, con men, who raised a bunch of money and took off. One of them's in jail and one's still at large. So the, the radio station started at a deficit and was always behind the eight ball. And then unfortunately, because of that, over the years, they had to hire just radio management people who were apolitical, you know, just their bottom line was trying to make a profit. And the radio, it started getting away from its mission statement and they were firing great people and hiring terrible people. And um, it just I learned that radio is just as uh, craptastic as any other <laughs> office job and... You know, middle management radio goons are no different than network nerds. And um, I, I imagine know. it took you. I imagine it took you away from the stand-up stage too. I mean, if you, if you're on the on the air, those are the hours when there are stand-up comedy shows for the uh-huh. most part. 
Right. There was I was doing much less stand up, but also at that time I was so in, incredibly. Uh, I had a real anger management problem um, that I still work on now, but the political situation since 2000, I mean, I really, since the Antonin Scalia installation of George Bush, I mean, I really thought I was going to lose my mind. And the, the, the after 9-11, the way the administration treated us and the, the march to war, all that stuff consumed me to uh, a point where I, I didn't, what, what do you say about it joke-wise? What do you, what it, how do you find a way to talk about it? Plus there were so many people in comedy audiences when I would do stand-up who in their ignorance were just, if you brought up George Bush in a critical way, unbelievable, just the outrage and the booing and a couple of times myself and other comics would have to be ushered out the back of the theater space in 2002, 2003, uh, all all kinds of death threats and this that and the other. So it was, it was you know it was not really worth the effort to do stand up. But I found it very difficult to find anything funny at all. Now now it's easier because I've worked on my anger management issues <laughs> about it. But I still that 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 uh, Phelan Sarah Sarah Palin or Phelan. Uh, this will get the the ladies right. <laughs> She's a lady. Ladies are gonna vote for a lady, right? Ladies. That kind of insult, uh, you know, the Republicans just never tire of just smacking you in the face of, with insults, uh, that, that it just, that, that they really, to choose this woman that, as if uh, women are now going to just vote because they recognize a lady on stage and, you know, but this is a woman who is against reproductive rights and wants creationism in school, but she's a hockey mom. You know, they say that like, oh, oh, oh hockey mom. It's that ka-ching. They, you know, that's just. Wait, what was that ka-ching? Was that you printing that's money? That's the lever. I'm oh, not that good was the with lever sound effects. Gotcha. Ka-ching? I didn't realize they made a ka-ching. And money makes the sound of chunk. <laughs> right? Is that the sound of money? You're back doing a, a lot more stand-up uh, these days. I mean, you're you're also you're also acting. You got a, a regular role on a hit television program. On but... 24, torture. <laughs> they love to torture on 24. Yeah, I was a fictional government operative on The West Wing, where people were nice, and now I'm a fictional government operative in the world of Jack Bauer, where people are not so nice. We're talking about fictional people. Fictional people, yes. Yeah. That's you, that's hence, the, hence the word are... fictional that I yeah. just used twice. Oh, did you? Do you remember I just said fictional twice? My apologies. Okay. My apologies. I'm just kind of spacing out up here. <laughs> Such an easy job. Uh, do you still get out of doing stand-up comedy what you want to get out of it? Like, mm-hmm. does it still give you, you know... Yes, I find it's, it's enormously satisfying and enjoyable. I like to express myself that way. I just like to do it. It's fun. Uh, I got a lot of good friends that do it, and we can travel together and do shows together. And um, it's I, I, I more now, oddly, I've started a thing where I just walk into the audience now, uh, which I've been enjoying a lot. I don't know why, and uh, if you come to the show tonight, I'll probably do it. It's just, uh, I just started doing it one night, and now I can't stop doing it. Just walking up and talking to an individual, which is no fun, I guess, for anyone craning their neck to turn around to see where you're talking. But... Um, I, I, you don't I, do comedy for those people. 
Well, I, yeah, it's just the one person. You've yeah. heard the expression, if I could just make one person laugh. But the, <laughs> it's uh, like this. It's if you could just make one person crane their neck to look at you. Yeah, then I've succeeded. Yeah. But I, I just I really enjoy it in a way. And, you know, I, I actually enjoy working on 24 uh, very much. Very nice people. It's very fun. But I can't honestly say the part I'm playing is – I'm, I'm a computer genius FBI operative whose basic function, I guess, is to deliver, to deliver expositional – Information for the TV audience to do tell you, you what you either you just saw or you're gonna see. That's do what you I have do. an enhance button? Do you also enhance things? Enhance? Oh, I do a lot. I, I say things enhance, I don't know enhance. what I'm saying at all. I, I am not computer savvy yet. Apparently, I can out hack Chloe O'Brien. I can get in and out of any. I can get you know what I mean. I can anybody that's gone rogue, I'll get them back. Anything I can find, anything I can do, anything. I don't know what I'm saying on the show. <laughs> I've got post-it notes stuck everywhere, so I can just... To be fair, you know. though, Janine, to, to be fair to the producers, you do wear spectacles. In real life, yes, I do. I do so. wear... So I must be smart, yeah. but I do wear glasses, and I wear glasses on the show uh, because I don't like to wear contacts early in the morning because sometimes I get, have to get up at 3.50 a.m., oh. um, and I don't want to put contacts in. So uh, my character wears glasses <laughs> on the show. Well, Janine, I thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Sandy Thank Mayor. you was, for having me. It was so me. fun to have you. Thank you. Thank Janine you. Garofalo. Thank you. You can find Janine Garofalo's tour, The Satiristas, online at myspace.com slash satiristas, S-A-T-I-R-I-S-T-A-S. That's it for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org and you can email me directly at jesse at MaximumFun.org. Oh, hey, our intern is Casey O'Brien and this show was edited and uh, actually produced and directed in uh, Seattle by Nick White. We'll see you on the next Sound of Young America podcast. Bye-bye.